0: Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Who Killed? I am your host Bill Huffman, and on this week's show I will begin the arduous task of covering an infamous case out of Austin, Texas, the Yogurt Shop Murders. This case has been covered by the likes of 48 Hours, Dateline, Inside Edition, and a plethora of podcasts, some of my favorite podcasts, including True Crime Garage, and many others. The reason I wanted to take a look at this case is I just recently finished Beverly Lowry's book, Who Killed These Girls, and it reinvigorated my interest in the case. I will do my best to do it justice since it's so well known, and next week I may even have a special guest to discuss what's going on with this case. So let's get this week's episode rolling, Who Killed the Yogurt Shop Four. December 6, 1991 started off like most days in Austin, Texas for Sarah and Jennifer Harbison. They got ready for school, packed their book bags, and headed off for the day. It was an overcast day for the city, with temperatures maxing out around 72. A fairly cool Texas Friday. Austin, Texas in 1991 was just coming into its own as a nationally known place where creativity can thrive. Not only is Austin the capital of Texas, it holds the title of live music capital of the world. In 1994, the city created the Austin Film Festival, and filmmakers and actors such as Mike Judge, Richard Linklater, and Matthew McConaughey call Austin home. In 2002, Austin City Limits was founded and became one of the premier live events in the U.S., drawing groups from all over the world to perform. Unfortunately, when you mention the word yogurt shop in the city of Austin, everybody knows what you're talking about. On that Friday night in 1991, Sarah would be working the night shift, so her plans were already set. She would be working with Eliza Thomas, another classmate from Lanier High School. For Sarah and Eliza, their shift was going to be just like any other Friday night they worked together. I can't believe It's Not Yogurt was thriving. And the shift started exactly that way. This was 1992, and the frozen yogurt fad was still in full swing, with lines pretty much at most times. The chain the girls worked for had hundreds of stores in multiple states. Amy Ayers, a friend of the girls, and Jennifer Harbison, Sarah's little sister, came up to the shop to hang out, a normal routine for any teenager who has friends working by themselves. Their place of employment can become an ideal new hangout spot. We've all been there. As the shift progressed, patrons came and went. It was a Friday night, so the store was busy, and the girls would be closing late. Around 11.45 p.m. that same night, a local police officer was on patrol when he took notice to smoke coming from the yogurt shop. As the call went out to the fire department, the blaze quickly became a two-alarm fire, requiring assistance from other departments to extinguish the blaze. In all, it took about 50 firefighters to get the fire completely under control and prevent it from spreading to the other stores in the strip mall. What started off like any other day ended in horror for the four girls at the shop, the families, their friends, the first responders, and the community of Austin. As the fire was being put out, nobody really knew what they were going to find once they entered the building. After extinguishing the hot spots and other little fires, they came across something they wish they could all forget. In the back of the store, near the exit, they found four bodies piled on top of one another. As the medical examiners were called in, the grief the first responders were going through was clear. It was also obvious something horrible had occurred as the firefighters emerged, dazed and confused. One veteran police officer said he was stunned by the senseless killings of the four teenage girls, all of whom were shot twice in the back of the head, in a yogurt shop, and then was set on fire. Quote, I've been on the force for 10 years and lived in Austin 20, and this is the worst I remember, at Sergeant Scott Carey said at the time. People had always believed that the city was safe, and as cliche as that is, They were now entirely gripped by fear. On December 8th, 1991, the Associated Press issued a report that kind of detailed the carnage that the firefighters faced and the trauma these girls were forced to endure. Police were at a loss but said robbery may have been a motive for the slains, and fire may have been used to cover the crime. As the scene became overcome with rescuers, investigators, and the media, police said they have no suspects in the case. As the fire was put out, investigators were asking any customers who were in the I Can't Believe It's yogurt store around closing time to come forward and talk with them. The victims, as I mentioned before, were all from Austin, and they were identified as Jennifer Harbison, who was 14, and the younger sister of Sarah, 15, Eliza Thomas, the oldest, at 17, and Amy Ayers, the youngest, at 13. Now... Officials obviously confirmed that Jennifer and Eliza were the store employees, and Amy and her sister Jennifer, that's Sarah's sister, were just visiting. And based on their preliminary investigative work, that robbery was being considered as a possible motive for the killings. Now, the city was really, really gripped with fear And it didn't help that the homicide detective went on and commented to KLBJ Radio about the suspect being high on drugs because I, quote, I certainly hope so because it doesn't look like the act of a sane, rational individual, unquote. Kerry did say that police had not ruled out the possibility that the assailant or assailants actually knew one or more of the victims. The owners of I Cannot Believe It's Not Yogurt did issue a statement following the incident saying, quote, We are shocked, saddened, and outraged at this bizarre incident, said Patty Rupke, the company's director of marketing. Our first thoughts are with the families. We don't yet know any additional details. We are in contact with the police, awaiting further information. Sergeant John Jones, who was in charge of the investigation, said, This is four girls that are now dead. For what reason? Surely they did not have much money in there. The price of life seems to be getting cheaper and cheaper by the days, Jones said. The county medical examiner's office said the three bodies were burned beyond recognition, but there was little doubt about the identities. Dental records would eventually go on to confirm the initial identifications. Unfortunately, at the time, there weren't any suspects. And according to Lieutenant Andrews, quote, We are still going on the theory that robbery was the motive. We don't have any reason at this point to believe anything else. Police, again, were asking customers to come in and tell them if they had seen anything unusual. After reports of the fire, murder, and robbery hit the wires, investigators in Las Cruces, New Mexico, had an uncanny feeling come across them. The police went on to say that they were looking into the slain at the Austin Yogurt Shop for any possible link to a 1990 Bowling Alley robbery that left four people dead in the city of Las Cruces. Captain Fred Rubio said a detective from the Las Cruces Police Department told Texas officials about the slains, and they were going to compare notes at the time. Now, the four girls ranging in age from 13 to 17, as I mentioned before, were shot twice in the back of the head. The case did have similarities to the case in Las Cruces that occurred on February 10, 1990. In the killings in New Mexico, two men had robbed a bowling alley for $5,000 and shot all the witnesses in the back of the head. The robbers then set lays to cover up the crime, but one of the victims was actually able to call for help. Rubio said that they have not gone over the details with the Austin police, but they do look forward to doing that in the future. Now, Texas investigators said robbery does still appear to be the motive, but one of the differences in the cases between the yogurt shop murders and the Las Cruces bowling alley killings was that the victims in the yogurt shop were tied up and the victims in the bowling alley case were not. As the investigation went nowhere quickly, fear began to grip a city that it once believed to be safe. With hindsight being twenty twenty. I can see how the media embraced the idea of selling panic and fear. In the local Austin paper, The Statesman, the killings of four teenagers have created a new fear of crime. Quote, You wonder how you go out the door if you'll come back, says Barbara Fields of Austin. Quote, I just don't really feel safe. Statistically and comparatively speaking, Austin really is a safe city. But when you do have a killer or killers targeting young girls, I can see how that could become a driving force behind the decision making at that time. And tell me if you don't hear some panic written within the context of this next passage, Quote, "as senseless and random the yogurt shop slayings were." They could have galvanized, or they galvanized the community as few incidents or issues could cutting through our collective consciousness to a fragile sense of security barraged by a ceaseless stream of major crimes. A convenience store clerk is shot to death behind the counter. A cab driver stabbed to death behind the wheel. A woman is killed after leaving a dance hall. A man is stabbed to death as he arrives for work at a furniture store. A girl is sexually assaulted, yada, yada, yada. You get it. So basically, at this time, police were dictating to the papers that fear was a serious concern. So, what do papers do? Papers run with what they got. And statistically, at the time, Austin was still just as safe as it had always been. There had been no increase in violent crimes, there had been no increase in robberies or sexual assaults, but In the days after the killing, thousands of people became panic-stricken. And according to Mark War, who is a University of Texas criminologist, quote, a crime like this can create a panic. It suggests that the risk of being victimized has suddenly increased, or that we've underestimated the danger all along. The problem is, you're never really isolated from any danger. And although many people across the city say their fear of crime has increased, the crime rates, again, in Austin were stable when compared with 1990. For example, in the first nine months of 1991, there were 51 homicides. That's only up two from the year before. People aren't able to see the numbers for what they are when fear comes with well-publicized cases like the yogurt shop murders. Quote, it doesn't make a difference what part of the city you live in it's going to happen no matter where you are, said Tony Mendoza of North Austin. Tina Hudson, who also lives in North Austin, said, I hardly ever go out late at night. If I do, I try to be with somebody. It didn't used to be that way, she said. Some professors believed violent crimes were on the rise, and one of those was David M. Horton, professor of criminal justice at St. Edwards University. Quote, yes, there is more crime out there, and it's more violent, unquote. Horton said he thinks violent crime, quote, tends to create almost a national psyche, a national psychological mood of fear and suspicion. It's not an indicator of general overall health in a society. So the killings in the yogurt shop brought back memories of the killings of three other teens in Texas that were dubbed the Lake Waco murders. And I will admit that I had not heard of that case until I started investigating this case. The killings of the teenagers and the slayings of the two men on Friday were the latest in what the statesman was dubbing a series of numbing acts of violence in Austin that have replaced trust with suspicion, weariness, and fear. They go on to say there are burglar bars on windows, alarms and cars, and deadbolts on doors. Private security firms have been flooded with calls, and many women don't Walk alone and parents keep a close watch on their children. The real estate market even changed due to the perceived increase in violence, as apartment seekers, mostly women, had said that they were seeking out second floor apartments so they could be out of the reach of any particular assailant. Now, again, where there's a will, there's a way. Now, for protection and security, some people have turned to guns. One person was quoted as saying, If you knew the true number of people arming themselves, I think that would come as a shock. And again, this is Texas. One gun shop said they received 15 to 20 calls a day about managers being able to carry a gun and what the legality was about arming employees. So, let's just say this. 51 murders in Austin, 300 murders in New Orleans. I would say that Austin is a safer place to live, and they have the same exact population. But others were unimpressed with such novel ideas. This next quote sums up the fear people faced in 1991 and how it really impacted the perception of the city. Quote, You want the truth? We want to get the hell out of this town, said North Austin resident Rick Pope, who's looking toward smaller towns to the north. In an article by Pamela Ward of The American Statesman, she stoked the fears of the city with her description of what children had to deal with in 1991. Quote, violence has walked off the movie screen into real life. Kids don't have to buy a ticket anymore to see savagery played out in central Texas. Students this fall have dodged bullets while riding school buses home. They've watched police shoot a 14-year-old at school when he rushed them with weapons. And last week, they lost four of their own to murder in a yogurt shop. Violence is invading what seemed to be a secure territory for children, and the impact is a range of emotions such as uncertainty, anger, and anxiety. Tell me there's not a little bit of panic in that article. So in Austin in 1991, parents were debating the safety of their children working jobs and locking up businesses as they basically had only those hours to work. Now, it was a part of a cultural shift for the Hispanic population who wanted to instill a sense of responsibility with their children about holding a job and, you know, what responsibilities come along with that. But five days after the killings, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension and indictment of the person or persons responsible for the December 6th murders of four teenage girls at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Back to Pamela Ward of The American Statesman. She went and spoke with students who had returned to classes the following weekend of the killings, and she says that it was a bitter realization that four of their friends won't be coming back. In the article, she states where Jennifer always sat, there was one empty desk, the same for Sarah, Eliza, and Amy. Shock seemed to be the theme of the day. Quote, everybody's still pretty much in shock, said Shauna Kunkel, a Lanier Student Council president. Quote, there's a lot of denial. Nobody wants to think this happened. Everybody's really hurting. So at Lanier High School, who lost three students, they had a dozen counselors that helped students with individual attention. And as a big proponent of therapy, in 1991, this was a very proactive move. They even had PTA volunteers in the hallways that were also helping students cope with the obvious tragic circumstances. The vice principal of the school, Georgia Johnson, said, quote, a death from sickness or an accident, we could understand. But this we can't explain. Unfortunately, nobody has an answer. And as one would expect after such a tragedy, the statesman goes on to say, girls shed tears and hugged one another for comfort while the boys were more defiant in their grief. And some wore bandages on their fists, reminders of the rage they vented when they learned of the news. Betty Phillips, coordinator of student intervention services for the Austin Independent School District at the time, said, quote, there are strong feelings of revenge and violence. We have a lot of kids here who are very, very hurt and very upset. And all their problems are coming to their forefront. Their feelings are what you would expect. There is just shock, horror, indignation. The consensus was all the girls were very vivacious, full of life, and really enthusiastic. And at Amy Ayers Middle School, she was considered a very popular eighth grader. The goal was to create an environment of caring in both schools. And in a good example of how a school district should deal with death, both faculties actually met the day before classes resumed and supported each other and prepared a plan to deal with the students when they came back into school. Now, that Monday after the killings, a group of about 60 Lanier high school students visited the yogurt shop as just a way to sort of relieve some of the pressure that they had been feeling. Now you had parents who were afraid for their own children, and children were frustrated and angry at the senselessness of the crime. And so you have a whole community gripped in fear. And the idea that this person was still out there and somewhere could be mind-numbing for the kids. And basically, it was a city gripped in—I'm sorry to say the cliché—fear. I keep quoting the Statesman from Austin, and it was a fabulous resource for information in regards to this case— And they put together a fabulous timeline of all the shocking events that actually unfolded early on in the investigation. And they continue to do so throughout the case, even all the way up until the 2000s. So I'm going to read a little verbatim here from their article. And on December 6, 1991, this is the day that the fire occurred, and they responded to the blaze where they found the victims. And then on December 8, 1991, the medical examiner had released autopsy reports stating that the four girls were actually shot in the head, and police came out with the fact that they had no suspects. There was, in December 9th of 1991, the discovery of evidence that they say led them to believe that more than one person was involved in the actual killings. Then on December 10, 1991, about 1,500 people attended the victim's funeral mass at St. Louis Catholic Church. On December 12, 1991, the Travis County District Judge John Weiser seals autopsy reports on the victims at the request of the Travis County District Attorney's Office. Then on December 17, 1991, a possible profile of the suspect or killers was released by police. December 31, 1991, New Year's Eve, the victim's parents make a plea for additional help, and Governor Ann Richards releases a written statement asking the community for assistance. Then on January 3, 1992, the Austin Police Department, along with local, county, and federal authorities, form a task force to solve the case. On January 6, 1992, police released additional information about the murders and Twelve billboards displayed the images of the slain teenagers. On February 26, 1992, police made an arrest of Laura Green on suspicion of stealing four tombstones. She was actually charged with theft by appropriation and questioned in the yogurt slains. Her arrest came after intensive interrogation of a group of Austinites labeled by police as PIBs, People in Black. Police later say Green is not a suspect in the killings. On February 27, 1992, local celebrities do what they do when things like this occur in the community, and they recorded a song, We Will Not Forget, a song written by two local musicians and dedicated to the four slain girls. Now, proceeds from the song were donated to a fund that was established to help solve the case and reduce crime through education and counseling. A significant step or moment occurred in March of that year when Austin police released a sketch of a man who had been seen parked outside the shop the night of the slayings. Now, police did say that the sketch resembles the sketch of a suspect in a November assault and abduction. Then the case gets national and international attention with the March 25th, 1992 broadcast of 48 hours that focused on the investigation of the yogurt shop murders. Another big moment came when the Austin business community came together and added $75,000 to the $25,000 that was initially offered by the, I can't believe it's yogurt company, making the total reward $100,000. Now, on June 6, 1992, six months after the murders, there was a break. Police began searching for three men indicted in a November abduction and sexual assault. The three men are Alberto Cortez, Carlos Sabadera, and Ricardo Sanchez. The men are wanted for questioning in the yogurt shop murders. Then on August 7th of 1992, America's Most Wanted and Everybody's Favorite host, John Walsh, held a segment about the yogurt shop murders that prompted some 60 tips. On October 12, 1992, Austin sex crimes investigator Joy Mooney goes to Mexico City to give the Mexican Attorney General a deposition about the three men charged with abducting an Austin woman. One of the men in the abduction case fits the description of a man seen in a car outside the yogurt shop the night of the murders. Mooney was joined by two Austin homicide investigators, Sergeant Mike Huckabee and Lieutenant David Parkinson. Now then, uh, October 16, 1992 comes, and Austin investigators have returned from Mexico City with the Mexican authorities being cooperative in the search for the three men. October twenty-second comes about, and Mexican federal authorities say they have arrested two of the men wanted by Austin police and one has confessed to the murders of the four girls in the yogurt shop killing. Officials said Porfiro Villa-Savadera, 28, and Alberto Jimenez-Cortez, 26, were being held and that a third suspect was still at large. And then the American Statesman, which is the Austin paper that I have been citing numerous times throughout this episode, released an article, or published an article, I should say, in that day and age, titled, quote, City Breathes Heavy Sigh With Arrests and Slains, and it was written by Tim Lott and Starita Smith. Word began to spread around Lanier High School that there had been an arrest in the slains. People were happy, people were crying, and according to Lindsay Carey, a 14-year-old freshman at the high school where the girls attended, it was really emotional, she said. Students at Lanier learned the news actually over the public address system at the end of the school day. There were vivid accounts of when and how the news came. Quote, Eric was watching TV and ran into my room saying, quote, they caught them! They caught them! And we both started crying, Kat Icorn recalled, as she and Eric, her son, visited the site where the yogurt shop once stood. The space is now occupied by a copying store. The Icorns made the trip to the site as soon as they heard the news. They placed four white candles, one for each of the girls' souls, along a window ledge. Quote, I wanted to light the candles to show my support for the girls. My daughter is 16. She's been here many times. It could have been her. I'm glad someone was caught, and I hope the families find peace. Now, this is an issue in this day and age where we kind of run with stuff when we get early news about a possible break in a case. But back in 1992, when this would have been breaking the news was coming kind of at a trickle so it was not really fair to say that everything was going to be okay and that they actually had their guy but at that time it was enough for the city to kind of breathe and it can understand why they did jump on the confession of one of the assailants that was arrested in mexico now Of course, the relief was short-lived as the confession that was made was eventually ruled inadmissible as the defendant recanted his confession and said that he was tortured to confess. After the confession was recanted, things kind of went quiet for a while. I don't want to say the investigation went cold, but there was definitely a lull. And in August of 1999, police assigned six new investigators and one sergeant to pursue a new lead. Just a few months later, on August 6, 1999, Austin police arrest Forrest Wellborn, Maurice Pierce, Robert Burns Springsteen IV, and Michael Scott on capital murder charges. I'm going to go ahead and play a couple clips from the interrogations of both Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen and let you guys decide if they were properly interrogated. I will warn you the audio isn't great, but I did my best to make it sound as good as possible. As quick as things move in Texas, it was only two months later, on December 9, 1999, when a judge rules that Pierce and Wellborn, 16 and 15 at the time of the killings, could be tried as adults. So as the train steamrolled towards a conclusion on December 14th, 1999, a Travis County grand jury indicted Springsteen on four counts of capital murder. District Attorney Ronnie Earl announces he will seek the death penalty. Four days later, on December 18th, a grand jury indicted Pierce, and Scott on four counts of capital murder. Prosecutors said they were going to seek the death penalty against Scott, but cannot against Pierce because he was a juvenile at the time of the crime. So as the twists and turns continued, it was in June of 2000 when a judge dismisses the capital murder charges against Wellborn after a second grand jury declines to indict him. The train didn't stop for Springsteen, though, because in April 2001, Jury selection began in the capital murder trial. Prosecutors arrived in court armed with Springsteen's confession, but really had no physical evidence tying him to the crime scene. And despite not having any physical evidence, the jury reached a conclusion in June 2001 and sentenced him to death for the murder of Amy Ayers. About a year and a half later, in September 2002, a jury convicted Scott, of capital murder and the death of Amy Ayers as well. He is sentenced to life in prison. So as quickly as he was charged on January 2003, charges against Pierce were dismissed, and he was released from jail. As Springsteen sat on death row for nearly five years, in May 2006, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals threw out his conviction, saying that Scott's written confession was improperly used against Springsteen. The case was then sent back to Travis County. Then in June 2007, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals threw out Michael Scott's conviction, ruling that Springsteen's confession was improperly used against Scott. You still with me? Prosecutors said at the time they were prepared to retry both defendants. Then it all fell apart in April 2008 when a defense lawyer disclosed in a court document that previously undiscovered DNA did not come from either Scott or Springsteen and was taken from one of the victims. A few months passed, and on June 25th, Springsteen and Scott were both released from jail on their own recognizance after prosecutors tell the state district Judge Mike Lynch they're not ready to go to trial in July. So prosecutors dismiss all charges against Scott and Springsteen. On October 29, 2009, a judge dismissed the murder charges against the two men that were awaiting the retrial in the 1991 killings. One of the men, Robert Springsteen, had been on death row for roughly eight years. The other man, Michael Scott, had been sentenced to life in prison. Both convictions were overturned by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and they said they were unfairly denied the chance to cross-examine each other. The men were released on bond in June of 2009 after new DNA tests could not match them to the crime scene and revealed the presence of an unknown male. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire! Huh?